The Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Cisco, the bridge to possible. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. AJ Bonga, MasterCard Executive Chairman, joins the Post to discuss how companies can build resiliency amid the sweeping changes unleashed by the coronavirus pandemic. Let's listen. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist at the Post. Today, we have another in our series on opportunity and crisis, and we're looking at reimagining business resiliency in this period of the COVID pandemic. Our guest today is Ajay Banga, who is the executive chairman of MasterCard. Uh, Until the end of December, he was the chief executive officer and had an extraordinary run there. Uh, Welcome to Washington Post Live, Ajay. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you, David. So I want to start with the transition. Uh, You did have a remarkable run, just looking at some numbers. During your 10 years as CEO, MasterCard moved from the 256th most valuable company in America to the 21st most valuable. That's, That's quite a rise. Curious, when you turned over the reins as CEO to Michael Meebach, what advice you had for him? about how to continue that record of performance? Well, the first advice was to make sure that he kept doing it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, uh, it's actually very interesting. Michael had been in the company with me for nine out of my 11 years here. He had joined in my first couple of years here. I knew him in a prior role many years ago when he was at Citibank. And he uh, had worked both in running our Middle East Africa region but also I'd run our products and innovation. And so the guy was well versed and well steeped in our priorities and our strategy, in our people, in our culture, and our, our way of working. And so very little of the advice had to do with that. Most of it had to do with what it takes to be the CEO and the different constituencies and stakeholders that matter to you, from your employees, to your shareholders, to your clients, and to the consumers eventually use your product, but also governments and regulators and how they play and interplay in this work we do. So most of the of the work we've done together is in that space. The rest of it, honestly, he was well on top of, and I couldn't be more proud of the way in which he's settled into his role over the period of time now. Let me ask you to focus on our specific topic today of business resiliency. What has MasterCard learned in this last year uh, of the pandemic, the economic slowdown, the radical changes in how we worked, the racial justice protests that have swept America? What has resiliency been for MasterCard in this year? David, there's a lot in that question. So let me unpack it a little bit and start by telling you that one thing we all clearly missed, companies, governments, civil society, we missed the possibility of something like this catching us all. You know, there were people, Bill Gates had spoken about this some years ago, others had, but I don't think in totality, companies or governments had actually planned for the enormity of the manner in which this virus spread through the world and the impact it had on literally, it felt like hitting a wall and shutting down. Now, I had lived in Asia through SARS and MERS, and I had seen Ebola from America. And each time, these crises that felt really bad at that time 
somehow got geographically contained. This one didn't. I think globalization had changed, uh, the connectivity of countries had changed, the amount of travel in between countries had changed, and I think we missed it. So the first lesson of this crisis is we missed it. And we really have to widen the aperture with which we think about blue sky risks in the future, because you can't afford to have this again. So that's one big part of the story. The second part of it was when it happened, the first thing we did was to tell our employees that their jobs were safe and we would have no layoffs during the year caused by COVID. And the logic of that was that we found our employees were scared. We were scared. Michael and I were scared. Why would our employees not be scared? They were scared for our health, scared for our families, scared for the future, scared for our children and what it meant for them. If you go back to March the 13th, when the US began to shut down, nobody knew what was causing this, whether it was touch, aerosol, breathing, you, everything was a matter of insecurity. The last thing you needed at that time was to have your employees also fearful of their jobs. So we tried to take one insecurity, the one thing we controlled as management, off the table and tell them, focus on your health, your family, your colleagues, your clients. Focus on that. Focus on making the company run well through what was a once-in-a-lifetime challenge or felt like at that time. And don't worry about your own jobs. So that is the first thing we did. As it turns out, it was the single best decision we made. That's the second thing we focused... Sorry, go ahead. Well, no, I, I just was going to ask you on that question of no layoffs, uh, Ajay, whether you got pushback from Wall Street, from, from major uh, shareholders who said, you're just not in a position to be making that promise. Anybody call you out on that? No, nobody did. We got full support from our board. We got full support from the investor community. Remember, we are more fortunate than some other companies that even though our business was impacted in that my decade in the company, I don't think I'd seen negative revenue growth rates, which we did have for part of last year. We entered 2020 at some of the highest growth rates of revenue we'd ever had as a company in the decade. A lot of the strategies were paying off. We were doing well. The tailwind is in our sales in terms of economic growth and consumer spending and globalization and digitization. So a lot was happening that was good for us. February, which is when China began to shut down and parts of Europe began to shut down, it was like we slowed like that. By March, we were declining. We exited March at the lowest level, literally the lowest level of what that we could have had in the first quarter. So April looked very bleak. And so in the midst of that, to make this decision was tough. But even though our revenues were declining, we had a profitable company with a strong franchise. And I think that enabled us with a decade of, of credibility on performance to be able to not have criticism from investors, Wall Street, others. So I think it turned out to be the best thing that, that Michael and I did in that period. We did a couple of other things. We put a lot of money into saying, we'll only be better off if the place around us improves. Because you know, if people spend, we benefit as a company. People can't spend if they're insecure, if they're locked up at home. And, and so one of the things we did was to say, put some money back into things that weren't obviously directly connected to us, but with the Gates Foundation 
and with the Wellcome Trust, we launched a therapeutic accelerator in an effort to accelerate the discovery of drugs, for example, or a commitment to small businesses and a very large commitment with the racial riots to, to solidarity with African-Americans. And so a bunch of things happened last year, which were uh, connected to the perspective we've had for some time about we benefit of society benefits. But then we did a lot of things with our business as well, in terms of data analytics, cybersecurity, in terms of the payments business that we were dealing with, which enabled us to remain on a strong footing through the crisis. And we helped our employees think through their countries going through four stages, each stage connected very clearly to how the company would be run in terms of strategy. So from containment to stabilization, to normalization, you know, the new normal, to real growth again, which we said right then would be a post-vaccination kind of event. And it feels like we're coming to later stages of normalization and some stages of growth, even though they aren't linear, countries go back and forth. India is a case in point, which seems to going through, be going through a very difficult period. Let me ask you, Ajay, to speak a little bit about, about India. You're an Indian American. Uh, your, yourself, um, reading the stories uh, coming out of Delhi, there was, there was one this morning by the New York Times correspondent there, Jeffrey Gettleman, which is wrenching to read a, a personal account of, of a, a place where the positivity rate is now 36%, according to, to Gettleman. You uh, at, my, at MasterCard just l launched your own program to try to help in India. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that and what you're trying to do, and then we could talk about what the United States as a country might do. So I think, first of all, the situation in India is absolutely heartbreaking. There is not a single person of Indian origin I know who hasn't had somebody in their immediate vicinity, family, colleagues, classmates, teachers, someone, who is deeply impacted either because of being seriously ill or because of deaths in the family. So this is not something that's happening to somebody else. It's happening to everybody. And uh, I don't know whether 36% is the right number or not, because I doubt that testing facilities are adequately available for us to know who all have actually got it. Just as in New York back in March, April, May, there was no way that testing facilities were adequately available. So this is not about India, it's about this crisis. COVID is a, is a crisis that those who take for granted pay deep consequences for. And I think uh, that's part of the issue is that everybody's got an impact of some type or the other. Free this immediate situation, even last year, our company had committed to doing certain things with small businesses which we felt were the most impacted as they were in America and Europe and Brazil and every other country where small businesses and in particular those that were micro or were run by people of minorities or women were more impacted than others. And so a bunch of money and effort into getting them to go digital, getting them to be able to take their content online and therefore be able to survive the crisis. That money and effort was already pledged and operational. What changed was in January, India looked in great shape, 10,000 cases a day, which by the way is one fifth of what we in America today have, and we think we're in good shape. And fast forward from there, and today it feels like 350,000 cases, known cases in a day, 
And so everything has changed. And so we went back in, uh, we've, had, we've had deaths in our employee population in India, which is shocking for us. And so we've gone back in with a series of things to try and make a difference in our own small way, as many other companies have done. But one of the things we've offered to do is to work with the Indian government's scientific advisor and help to launch mobile field hospitals in India with about 2,000 plus beds in an effort to get hospital access, which as you know, is one of the biggest problems on the ground. We're doing other things with corporations in America, with Microsoft and Dell and JPM and, and Pfizer and Adobe and others under the auspices of the US-India Strategic Partnership Forum and the US-India Business Council to get oxygen cylinders and canisters moved. FedEx is being very helpful there. There's a number of companies that are trying to help. This is not a one company effort. We need many shoulders at the wheel to make a difference. This crisis is way beyond what any one of us can really help. We have launched an employee assistance fund dedicated to our Indian employees. In addition to the benefits the company has, we're trying to do our best in different ways, but boy, this is hard. And are the things that the United States government could do to work with businesses like yours or, or, or do independently that might address the severity of this crisis? Well, I think if you look at what the Indian government needs on the ground, and this is something that you know the ambassador to the United States and others from the Indian government in Delhi have made clear, they need certain kinds of inputs for the vaccines they were manufacturing. And I believe the administration is very favorably considering the availability of those to be shipped to India. India is, after all, meant to be the vaccine factory of the world. In fact, a lot of the work that COVAX was doing was reliant upon the Indian vaccine manufacturers, manufacturing the vaccines that were developed in the Western world and getting them out there in large enough quantities beyond India's borders, let alone meeting India's needs itself. And India needs vaccines for itself right now. So one clear aspect is whatever we can do with vaccines and vaccinations and them being manufactured is important. <clears throat> the second has to do with the availability of therapeutics. You know, we started the conversation about an accelerator for therapeutics. Well, Remdesivir and others that have shown to alleviate the symptoms of, uh, of COVID are deep, are in short supply. And you can hear horror stories on the ground about people trying to find the medication on their own for doctors and hospitals. And then the third aspect there is obviously more short term like oxygen and PPE that is required. I think all those are in the process of being handled with the administration from what I've read in the papers and what I've heard from people who are connected to it. So my, only, my only entreaty here, David, is this is not about the administration or the government or companies. Every one of us needs to put our shoulder to the wheel. This is a humanitarian crisis of the type that I hope we never see again. And if oh. we all realize that we're only as safe as the weakest link in our global vaccination chain in terms of this crisis of COVID, then it behoves us all to pay attention to this in India, but in lots of other emerging markets as well, where vaccinations are in short supply. Amen to that, and thank you. That's a, a moving account of, of the crisis and what to do about it. I want to turn back to business for a moment and ask you about something that interested me in your biography at, at MasterCard. When you became CEO, I've, I've read, you said to Wall Street, 
we don't want to uh, give you the regular quarterly, quarterly earnings forecasts that are so common. Uh, we want to step back and, and stop thinking about the short term, think more about the longer term. We're going to tell you every quarter where we think we'll be three years from now, as, as I've read these accounts. Tell me about uh, that, that decision and about your efforts to get your company and, and more generally uh, help corporations think longer term as opposed to in quarterly uh, earnings snapshots. So David, it started out with the fact that uh, my company had just gone through an IPO two to three years earlier, because earlier than that, we were owned by a confederation of banks around the world, which owned shares in our company in proportion to the business they did with us. We were like that, Visa was like that. We'd just gone through the IPO a couple of years before I joined. And we'd made commitments during the IPO of the kind of company we would build and its margins and so on. And when I first came in, I saw a, a ecosystem where 85% of consumer payments were still in cash. And, and B2B payments, which we've only just begun to tackle over the last few years in an aggressive way, B2B payments were even more inefficient. I mean, the average cross-border payment for goods you buy, T-shirts from one place being exported to another, well, the, the inefficiencies in that supply chain, in the bill presentment, in the way in which money is received, how long it takes, the fees that get charged, the that whole place was built for trade of 30 years ago, not for today. And so when you saw that as the opportunity, it felt odd that what we were focused on was the 15% of retail payments that were in cash at that time and not on the much bigger opportunity of the 85% that were in cash and of the large opportunity in B2B. So I went out to the investor community and said, I'm gonna change our focus from only winning share and profitability in the 15%. That felt like a harvesting strategy in the classic mode of corporate consulting. But as I felt we were in a growth phase as a company for the next two to three decades because of the enormous space that existed there. So by redefining competition, by redefining the space, I went back to the investor community and said, I want to focus on that opportunity. And that requires me to invest in technology, innovation, expansion of acceptance, expansion of issuing, greater relationships with merchants, greater opportunities of data, cybersecurity, AI and the like. And how would I do that if I'm harvesting the opportunity of the company as compared to ploying investment bank? So I'm not gonna give you a quarterly target of anything. I'm not gonna give you even an annual perspective. I'm gonna give you a three-year average growth rate of revenue and EPS. And I will reassure you that I will grow my margin along the way. I'm not gonna make this a less profitable company, but I'm not gonna give you targets for margin. I'm going to give you targets for revenue and EPS and grow them. And I'm going to grow them systematically over the three years as compared to every quarter. The investor community will make its projections for quarterly numbers. I used to beat them more times than not, but I didn't sometimes, and so be it. Longer term, we've tried to do the right thing. And as you said at the beginning, we've, had a, we've been blessed with great investor support and with a great reaction to our market capitalization. I joined when we were 20 billion. 
Last year in December, we were 356 billion on the 31st of December, and Michael continues to do well in that space. So, you know, I think it makes sense to do this. And the other thing that happened was, I wanted to ensure that we put a certain amount of money into being seen as a responsible player in the ecosystem. What do I mean by that, David, is that an American company, a global multinational of American origin, does not have a birthright to be in a country. You are there because the country wants you there. They want you because you bring value to them in some way, to their government, to their citizenry, to their society, to their economic aspirations, to their whatever, their priorities. And so you have to find a way to talk about yourself as relevant for what they want. And my understanding a year into the company was that financial inclusion, this aspect of people being excluded, billions of people being excluded, was a great opportunity to address. And you know, I've tried to refine that over the years by defining a triangle as the prism through which I see world's issues. And one side of the triangle is the trade-off between one and many. And that's inclusion. It's financial inclusion, it's gender, it's ethnicity, it's your sexual orientation, it's growing up on the wrong side of the tracks, it's not going to the right school, not getting access to the right healthcare, whatever, that. The other side has to do with humanity versus nature. And that's to do with green, with water, with the air we breathe, with the climate, with all the things that now we are talking about so openly and transparently. And the reason those two sides stay aloft is because the bottom side of the triangle gives them the strength to stand. And that is the trade-off between long-term and short-term. And for too long, whether you're a politician or a CEO or a school principal or anybody, you end up making trade-offs on that bottom side of the triangle that tend towards the short-term. So you're applying short-term band-aids to long-term problems. That's a bad place to be. And so when you put all this together, it's all churning in my head. And in hindsight, it all seems very clear. Trust me, at that time, there was a lot of turmoil in my mind about what to do and how to do it. So don't get me wrong. This was not clairvoyant 11 years ago. Hindsight's very easy. But we kind of found our way through this for the right commercial interest, but also trying to do the right thing. And, you know, your first question to me was about COVID resiliency. For a minute, I do not believe that the, the gaps in our society that have got exposed over this last period of time, ethnic issues, racial issues, gender issues, uh, none of the, these are not gaps that got created by COVID, David. They were there earlier in our society. Digital divide. I mean, honestly, COVID has just lit a fire under these. And therefore, we're all noticing it today. But shame on us if we don't realize that this has existed in our society for longer than that. And we really need to find a way to make a difference, all of us. And, don't, and again, don't get me wrong, we as a company have to do what we do well. Bring products that make sense, price them correctly, sell more to consumers and companies, make profits and do well. That is the first reason for existence because after all, People are giving us their money as shareholders and investors for us to give them a return. But that doesn't mean we can't do well and do good at the same time. These are not hackneyed phrases. These are things you need to live with. You need to care about this, and then you can make a difference. Let me ask you, Ajay, about, about one aspect of 
this uh, agenda for uh, inclusivity and, and racial justice that we've been focusing on as a country uh, these last uh, weeks, and that is violence against the Asian American community. We had the, the terrible shootings in Atlanta, uh, in which uh, eight uh, Asian Americans were, were, were killed. Uh, in Indianapolis, four members of the Sikh community last year were, were killed. I'm wondering if you think that uh, violence against the Asian American community is growing or we're just becoming more sensitive to it? I don't know how to answer that with facts because I don't know whether prior incidents were adequately trapped and reported. But I can tell you that since 9-11, I personally have faced things that tell me that this is not an isolated incident. And the combination of ignorance with real challenges in people's minds about feeling left out, I think that leads to a volatile uh, circumstance. So I'm not giving excuses for anything, but I think I really don't know how to answer whether it's more today than earlier. Reported level, certainly more. I mean, I don't remember reading about attacks against people of Asian American origin of the type I've read in the last six months to a year. I don't remember reading that in my prior 19, 20 years of living here. Uh, I also don't remember reading adequately about attacks against the Sikh community because of people mistaking us to be uh, Osama bin Laden in disguise, which is kind of what has been happening over the years. But I'm aware of them because of being from that community. So whether it's being trapped and correctly reported, whether it's all that, I don't know the answer to that. But I do know that this is wrong. And I do know that we can be better than this. And I am a firm believer in America's ideas. I tell everybody that I got the opportunities I got in America, not because I looked different, but because of what I brought to the party. And so real diversity to me is not that you and I look different, but that we have different backgrounds and therefore we bring different experiences. And if we can have a healthy debate about how our different experiences inform us better, we will actually be the best of friends and we can do more good together than otherwise. I believe in that. And I therefore am proud to be who I am here as an American, but also as a Sikh and as a diverse person, but I will never allow my diversity to define me. I do want my capabilities and my Americanness to define me. Let me ask you if, if I might, uh, Ajay, in the minutes we have left, I'm curious what uh, the, your Sikh heritage uh, has given you that is special, that you brought to your work, to your life, uh, that uh, our, our viewers might be interested to hear about? Now, I've been asked that a few times, particularly in the last year or so, with, I think, greater consciousness around, around the whole topic. But I'll tell you two things that, that are in our holy book, which I've sort of I've internalized them. I'm not a, I don't read the book every day. I'm not one of the more religious Sikhs out there, even though I have the trappings of my religion. But... The first one is that the holy book begins with, a, with words that basically say that there is only one God and that God is truth. So if you embrace that idea, then I, you know, it brings you back to what I was saying earlier that I don't understand these, these aspects of differentiation caused by what I look like and, and where I came from. What I care about is what you do and how you do it. So if there is only one God and that God is truth, then 
leading a life of decency is what matters. So I've tried to put that into my work. I've tried to put that into the words I use around decency quotient and bringing decency to work and defining that as the bedrock of Mastercard's culture during my time here, for sure. The second part is that in the Sikh religion, there is a great belief that you reward yourself by serving others. And, and that doesn't mean you don't reward yourself. You do. It starts by rewarding yourself. But one of the best ways to reward yourself is by serving others. And again, back to decency and being constructive in society. And I hope I try and do that. I make mistakes along the way. Don't get me wrong. My wife and children will tell you many mistakes I've made. But I try. And I'm willing to embrace the idea. That's a powerful description of, of what you brought to, to your to your job and to your to your life. Uh, and uh, I'll say again as we as we close, um, what an extraordinary run you had over your ten years as, as CEO of Mastercard. Thank you for sharing the insights that you gained, some of the strategies that you used. It's really great to have you as a guest on Washington Post Live. Thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you, David. It's been a privilege to be with you. Great. So uh, we'll be uh, back tomorrow uh, at 11 when my colleague Robin Gavan hosts a program on the future of retail sales in, in the post-COVID world. Uh, you can find information about our programming on WashingtonPostLive.com. Uh, uh, please go there and register for programs ahead. Uh, we're glad you joined us this morning for our discussion of uh, corporate resilience, and we hope we'll see you uh, again soon. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.